This is Views Over the City, produced and presented by Ian Davidson. Welcome to this third podcast in the Views Over the City series. I am Ian Davidson, a compensation benefits specialist who has spent the last 15 years working in financial services in the City of London. There are four topics in this podcast. First, the story of reward, with some comments on the importance of having a coherent narrative when talking about reward. Second, the increasing complexity of reward, particularly at a senior level. It is not enough to be highly technically skilled, a strategic maestro, an effective persuader, but also to have a highly developed situational awareness, encompassing the many stakeholders with an interest in the subject. The third topic is a little more technical, the subject of reward surveys. Finally, there is my commentary on the debate that is pensions. Let us start by talking of stories of reward. It is essential that we have a coherent narrative on reward. That is, there must be a compelling story of both the what and the why. There are many different interest groups around reward. The employees, management, compensation committees, regulators, media, the person in the street and so on. To be able to explain in a way that resonates with these different groups requires a coherent narrative. There are already many different stories out there on the subject of pay. Those in politics and the media speak of the squeezed middle and then go on to talk of higher rate taxpayers that only affect a small percentage of us in work. Or the stories around the poor. Are we talking relatively poor compared with the mythical average or do we mean the absolute poor? Stories about the rich are almost worse. Commentators mix up wealth with income. High wealth does not always mean high income, and high income does not mean wealth. I once had a difficult discussion with an investment banker earning half a million a year, but who had debts of over £2 million. Was he rich? Telling a story gives meaning, cohesion and structure to complex subjects. It allows our audience to engage in a powerful way and leads us to a much greater understanding of our subject than a dry, dusty, factual exposition. My children seem to pick up more history from the comic storytelling of the BBC's horrible histories than from well-crafted history lessons at school. In this time of social media and press scrutiny of reward, we have a vast audience of interest. It includes politicians, shareholders, regulators and so on. They all have different understandings, agendas and viewpoints. By using a good story of what we hope to achieve, we can craft a broad canvas to interest and engage our audience. Engagement is key to understanding a A well-crafted story creates the images and metaphors that define how people think about reward. Think for a moment about the different images that arise from the use of the word reward as opposed to compensation. Reward has positive images, Compensation perhaps less so. Are we rewarding people for their contribution or compensating them for their time and effort? A good narrative also helps us as reward experts in carefully defining the well-formed outcomes that we hope to achieve, as well as giving coherence to our thoughts and approaches. A good narrative also helps people make sense of some of the soundbite stories on pay. There are complex issues such as what is too much pay, an issue for individuals as much as it is for the national economies. A good narrative 
helps to explain and perhaps make simple some of the complex issues around pay, particularly for the high paid. This leads nicely on to the next topic in this podcast, the increasing levels of complexity in reward. If you have any involvement in this subject, you will be aware that there has always been technical complexity. Understanding share option values, long-term incentive plans and carried interest have always been technical issues, the meat and veg of reward work at a senior level. But now we are seeing something more. Perhaps it's always been there, but is it getting more and more important and more and more prominent? My wife and I like to work together to solve the Telegraph Quick crossword on my iPad. We are not yet good enough to attempt the cryptic crossword. We like crosswords as they test our knowledge, but so-so because you can go off down the wrong path very easily and not realise it until that last clue where you know the answer, but it doesn't fit into the grid because of an earlier wrong answer. Reward is like this in many ways. It is moving from being the quick puzzle to being a very cryptic crossword, where mistakes can be made and not discovered until a long way into the process of product design. It has become apparent to me that reward is at a crossroads in the middle of a maze. There are now so many stakeholders involved, employees, management, compensation committees, regulators, shareholder advocacy groups, trade unions and politicians. It is difficult to know which way to turn. They all have different viewpoints, different agendas, different understandings and different needs. There is a lack of common common understanding, common language and common definitions. What, after all, is high pay, or low pay for that matter? And how are pension contributions valued, or share options? As a result, what looks fair and reasonable to a compensation committee looks like highway robbery to a trade union. The area is fraught with paradox. We can see this at work in the controversy over BBC Pay for Talent. Because the BBC is funded by licence payers, there is the application of a different standard for, say, Jeremy Clarkson than there would be if he worked for a privately funded broadcaster. Yet the labour market for Clarkson is the same, regardless of which broadcaster he works for. What we and others are in pay is very important, yet there is no overarching theory on pay and reward. There are attempts, such as the excellent torment theory, or expectation theory, for example. Labour market economists will talk about supply and demand, but that is not the entire story. Behaviour economists are increasingly playing a part in pay theory, yet like Stephen Hawkins' attempt at grand unifying theory, we're really nowhere near achieving consensus on what is fair pay. So, reward specialists have the issue of not only undertaking complex work on pensions, share options, taxation, total reward, flexible benefits, accounting standards, compensation disclosure roles and the like, but we have to be able to justify our recommendations before the court of public opinion, public scrutiny and regulatory microscopes with these observers often having the luxury of 2020 hindsight. There are two concerns around this complexity. The first is that there are very few individuals who can move between the technically complex and the public relations facets of the current reward environment. Second, only the larger companies have the resources and time to fully fulfil the requirements, demands and disclosures needed by the stakeholders. Reward normally sits in HR, yet it has strong interfaces with finance, investor relations, risk, compliance and the company secretariat, to name but a few. Perhaps a new breed of expert will appear phoenix-like from the current ashes of the shareholder spring, 
but somehow I think we will just muddle along as always, relying on expensive consultants to tell us what we already know, but we use them as we lack the time to elucidate it fully, the analytical tools to verify it fully, and the oratorical skills to stand it in front of multiple audiences and rationalise it fully. But we will go on trying, anyway. This is Views Over the City with Ian Davidson. Now, I'm going to move on to a more technical subject, salary surveys. I was reading a very interesting CIPD blog by Catherine Turner, Vice President Reward for the CIPD. She was talking of the way that salary surveys are used and misused. The underlying question, in my view, is, are salary surveys a map or a sketch? Is the data generated by a salary survey an absolute answer, a relative answer, or just a pointer to a possible answer? There are two major themes when looking at this question. The first is the methodology of the survey approach, and second, the interpretation of the data. The initial issue is, what salary survey to use? Do we use an industry-specific survey, or look for more general coverage? As with many things in life, size matters. The smaller the survey population, the more careful we have to be about drawing conclusions. Looking deeper at the survey sample, we have to consider from where was the data drawn and how consistent has the sample population been over time. This is particularly important if we want to make any statement about changes over periods. The chances are fairly high that the population is not stable and has changed since last year, perhaps in terms of the companies taking part, or in the roles in the survey, or perhaps in the population in those roles. There is also the difficult question over job matching, both for the data submission and for matching our roles against the survey. I suspect there are more than a few reward professionals who have taken the quick and dirty route when submitting their data to salary surveys. The best providers of salary data, such as Hay or McLagan, go to great lengths to ensure the data is both clean and consistent. Again, size matters. A large survey has a higher probability of giving meaningful data, if only because of regression to the mean. Outliers that is very high or very low data points, have a smaller effect on large populations than small. The sample can also be affected by the way the survey population is chosen. If we use market capitalization to choose our comparators, then we need to be aware that there are fairly large changes in market caps over short periods of time. This is particularly the case when we are considering executive pay comparisons, where there is a direct correlation between market cap and the pay for senior executives. Likewise, rankings in the FTSE, DAX or NYSE changes, so using that as a benchmark filter carries its own issues. Taking all the above into account, we can see that the data, while useful, does not get anywhere close to giving us an absolute answer as to the rate for the job. This can be pr proved if we simply take two salary surveys covering the same role and compare them. It's a racing certainty that you'll get two different answers from two surveys for the same role. The data may give us a relative idea of what a role is worth, but that leads us on to an issue of interpretation. A seasoned practitioner will know these pitfalls and use judgement and experience to interpret data and offer recommendations rather than presenting the data as fact. It is not. It is just information. If we then add the important issues of relative equity within the role, not to mention the personal element of skill, experience, etc., 
we start to get close to rate for that individual in a role as well as the role itself. One of the big issues in executive pay has been the ratchet upwards caused by everyone aiming for the median, at least on base pay. Have I got a magic solution to these issues? No. But just being aware of the methodological issues makes a much better decision-making process and hopefully better recommendations. Finally, on today's programme. The biggest issue in Ward is, surprisingly, pensions. We are faced with a perfect storm that includes changing demographics with the ratio of workers to pensioners heading to an unsustainable low, long-term and historic low rates of investment returns linked with rapidly falling annuity rates, meaning fewer bangs for your pension bucks. The level of state pension provision in many European countries, such as Italy, France and Greece, is unsustainable in good times, let alone the current economic meltdown. This is leading to a relatively rapid increase in state retirement age and attempts by some countries, such as the UK, to move pension provision for anything over the safety net limit to employers and employees. Labour market demographics relating to pensions are moving to the equivalent of the horror movie. Fewer, younger workers with high levels of debt caused by a mixture of high university fees in the UK to mass youth unemployment in Greece and Italy, are supporting higher levels of the non-working elderly population. Job tenure appears to be getting shorter, with longer periods of un- or underemployment, as recent UK graduate employment statistics have indicated. The ability for younger employees to build a retirement pot over a working lifetime has been heavily eroded at the same time as state support is steadily being moved either by real reductions in pension value, means testing on anything over the most basic pension and increases in state retirement ages. If this is linked to the increasing cynicism and downright hostility to the entire world of financial services, pensions and investments included, of younger people, that makes retirement savings bottom of any list of financial priorities and thus unlikely to happen until far too late from a cohort of workers who will struggle to support the ageing populations across the world. We also have the unedifying spectacle of late middle-aged workers having to support, on one hand, their adult children who cannot find well-paid jobs or the ability to purchase or rent their own accommodation, alongside financially supporting their elderly parents and other relatives who have too much wealth to be eligible for the rapidly shrinking state care home provisions, but insufficient wealth to provide for themselves. An issue which incidentally will impact on the wealth inheritance of the middle classes, further eroding their ability to have a nest egg for retirement. In general, people are living for longer, perhaps much longer, as a mixture of improved living standards and innovative medical interventions, soon to be further enhanced, by individualised biomedical approaches around DNA mapping, means that life expectancy is moving into the 80s and beyond rapidly. The downside of this is the increasing medical and care costs of an ageing population being funded by a smaller and smaller number of poorer and poorer indebted younger workforce, facing competition for jobs and income 
from the Asian tigers and the BRIC economies. All these economic factors sit alongside a greater social expectation for a good retirement. Fidelity Investments has produced some excellent research highlighting the gap between what people save for retirement and their expected income at that time against their retirement aspirations. The gap is vast and growing. The issue of social revolution arises that when today's older workers see the retirement goalposts being moved further and further away, and when they reach retirement, their living standards plummet not only way below their expectations, but arguably below a subsistence level, with the state unwilling or more likely unable to pick up the slack. How will this massive demographic cohort react? Who will they blame? Because, of course, there must always be someone to blame. And, more worryingly, what are they going to do about it? What about those in work seeing their taxes being used to fund income and the rapidly increasing social care bill for the elderly, while they themselves see the pot for their old age reducing to nothing and their own living standards being not only less than their parents, who had well-paid jobs, accommodation and, at one time, a secure old age, and perhaps a standard even less than their grandparents. We are indeed like the Titanic, blindly heading towards the iceberg of demographics. In some ways, we are worse off, as those who run governments are well aware of what is happening, but turn a Nelson-like blind eye towards the iceberg, both due to the short-term nature of policies and politics, and because any of the solutions are so painful, no one even wants to think about them, let alone propose appropriate policy responses. Even those of us who work in reward can do little against the headwinds of the current economic, social and political environment. We are already in the perfect storm, and things can only get worse. In conclusion, we have looked at the story of reward, how we can put together a strong communication strategy based around a strong narrative. This led on to a discussion on the increasing complexity in the world of reward. It has moved from the purely technical to being a very relationship-based and stakeholder management process. It is about trying to reconcile the varying interests, or at least coming out with a situation where there is a broad understanding of the coherent reward story. My penultimate section was on the role, use and misuse of salary surveys. This gets to one of the key issues in executive compensation, with everyone aiming for the median and expecting a constant in what is really a quicksand of data. It is not a map, but a broad sketch of a moving landscape. The true professional knows this and uses the data accordingly. Finally, I talk about one of the biggest issues in worldwide reward today, that is pensions. It has the potential to cause major social and economic problems worldwide and, at least at the moment, seems incapable of any, let alone an easy solution. I do not have any answers, but thinking about these problems will prepare us cognitively for future issues. I'm Ian Davidson, a reward specialist for over 20 years. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. That was Views Over the City, produced and presented by Ian Davidson.